Well, hello there. This is Zeke Greenside, your host for Seed Stories. The following is an uncut interview with Greg LaHoulier from the Cherokee Purple Tomato episode. There's just so much good information about growing tomatoes, heirlooms, stories, and resources. We wanted to share this with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Sure. Yeah, I'm fine off the cuff. My view is I don't like to either, I don't like to over prepare for any of these things just yeah. uh, because that way different thing every time I have a conversation with somebody different things fire off rather than you know ending up saying the same stuff all the time which I don't like to do totally yeah I'm kind of like that too well there's a plus side of that and a (laughs) minus if you're you know feeling a good day it'll be a good improv improv (laughs) but I kind of roll that way too yep but yeah so I'm uh we could start with um sure Tell our listeners um, who you are and what your relationship is with uh, Cherokee Purple Tomato. Great. Well, you know, and thanks Zachary for the for the chance to talk gardening and yeah, tomatoes. It's uh, it's just a great time of year. You know, when you when you catch a tomato, an heirloom tomato enthusiast in March, it means that we've <laughs> we've decided what we want to start, and we typically always start about ten times more than we can fit. So it's like. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I've got about 5,000 varieties of seeds at least. So each year is just an incredible decision to decide what to grow. But we can get into some of that. So my name is Craig LaHoulier and recently relocated to Hendersonville, North Carolina, which is uh, in the mountains in the western part of the state, about maybe 15, 20 miles south of Asheville. And after living in Raleigh for 28 years, and uh, while I was in Raleigh, I kind of became known as the driveway gardener or NC Tomato Man or I picked up all these kind of interesting little labels and, and names um, because really the the trees around our yard grew and I was forced if I wanted to have a garden to have it in my driveway so I developed uh, an experience and an expertise in container gardening and straw bale gardening but it all goes back really to discovering the Seed Savers Exchange back in in 1986 and I think of that as the heyday in a way or really the big boom of when Seed Savers came onto the scene as maybe the most and still to this day the most important organization ever to form in terms of creating a vehicle where we can preserve our botanical heritage. you know, it's just amazing to think of what we can grow now and to think of how little of that would probably be around had the Seed Savers Exchange not begun in 1975. Mm-hmm. You ever thought of it that way? Yeah, yeah. Talking to people that have been a part of it for 10, 20 years have definitely um, have talked about what they've been uh, growing out since then and what's become available. So. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So when I was gardening back in Pennsylvania, um, I joined SSC in 1986, and I'm I'm one of those personalities where I keep wanting to try different things. So even if I like something, so I like a particular type of an ice cream or a particular type of anything, rather than stick to that one type, I want to keep trying others because I may something like something better, and that's that's kind of defined my gardening approach where my collections of everything have grown so large because I'm always in search of the the more interesting or the better or the better story or the rarer Um, and it's just 
been a journey that, oh gosh, since 1986, that's gone a long time. But I started um, joining seed swaps from magazines, and some of the magazines aren't around anymore. The two, the two that I remember are National Gardening, which I think it was Gardeners for All at first, and it became National Gardening. They had a great seed swap, and then um, Organic Gardening did. And typically it was tomatoes, um, but a fellow named John Green in Sevierville, Tennessee, I think he was a subscriber of one or both of those magazines because he, I got a letter from him and in, in fact the letter, I've taken a picture of it and it's in the back of my book Epic Tomatoes um, because I think it's kind of an important letter. And he essentially said I've got a really special tomato, a purple tomato that originates with the Cherokee Indians and um, you know you're the person that I want to send it to of, of anyone essentially. So. I get this uh, letter in the mail and I open it up and there's this packet of seeds and I grew that tomato in my garden back in 1990 and uh, was astounded because this predates the black tomato craze you know we didn't have the the 30 or 40 or 60 or 100 different purple or brown tomatoes back then um, it was ripening this distinct purple color and I you know said to my wife I hope this thing tastes really good because it sure is interesting and it was it was delicious so I saved lots of seed and I offered it in the Seed Savers Exchange yearbook the following year I did give it the name Cherokee Purple and um, then sent it to Jeff McCormick a friend of mine who owned Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and uh, Jeff grew it and he gave me a call and he said that he he loved the tomato, he the flavor of it, and he loved the story associated with it. But he was afraid that because it was so ugly and unusual, it would never be more than something you know in a fringe gardener's garden. It, it was not suitable for prime time. But he did offer it in his catalog in 1993 with the caveat that it was only for the very adventurous gardener. And it people liked it, and it took off. And so that's really how it came to me is uh, somebody just serendipitously decided to send me some seeds and I gave it a name based on the history that was sent to me and I sent it to the right seed company and I have no idea why so many people like it. So many people everywhere like to grow it. Um, but it just kind of staggers me to, to, to have been able to name a tomato that is out there. Yeah. I was just looking up uh, favorite tomatoes or top five tomatoes, and there's there's Brandywine listed, and then there's also Cherokee Purple up right up there, <laughs> right above uh, Brandywine. So it's pretty interesting that yeah, it still holds its glory to, to today. Well, you know, and it's interesting because when I joined the Seed Savers in '86, the the notable tomatoes I would say were certainly Brandywine, and that came into being from um, Ben Quisenberry, who was a very elderly seed seller back in the in the mid 70s to early 80s, and he popularized that. And Mortgage Lifter, which of course has such a great story, and um, in a way, I think Cherokee Purple has been uh, the next tomato that, for some reason, people like the story, people like the color, people like the flavor, a combination of all three. Who knows? Now, what's interesting is. You can actually use the Cherokee Purple story to define so much around any heirloom variety in terms of the number of hoops that a particular variety has, has to jump through, um, the number of 
times that it gets passed along the way from this family or that family. Um, and the other thing that I've found is we never, we rarely know enough about any given heirloom variety because it's like genealogy. It's like when you're trying to put together your family tree, you never really remember to ask your family members everything that you want to ask them until they're gone. And so, you know, there's so much more I wished that I knew about Cherokee purple. But when we moved, um, you, you never know what you have until you have to move, which means you go through everything and you decide what to throw away, to throw to keep, and what to keep. So I was looking through my envelopes of gardening communications and I found an envelope in a folder called Cherokee Purple. And I must have had a conversation with Mr. Green maybe in the last 15 years or so where he gave me a little bit more. And that information I did pass on to Mike Dunton who owns Victory Seeds in Oregon and it's actually in the listing for Cherokee Purple where he was given the seeds by a woman named Jean Greenlee who was a neighbor. Uh, she lived in Rutledge, Tennessee and he was given those seeds from her in the in the mid 80s and her grandfather Jean Greenlee's grandfather received them from the Cherokee Indians around a hundred years previous. So this this adds a new name and a new town to the story where we had J.D. Green in Sevierville, Tennessee now we've got Gene Greenlee in Rutledge, Tennessee. And, and that gives us a chance maybe to go back and see if we can contact Miss um, Greenlee or whether she's living or has relatives. So there's always more to dig about. And uh, that's one of the things I'd like to embark on maybe later this year is see if I can paint even a more complete picture of where Cherokee Purple came from. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, it's kind of like playing detective, uh, seed detective. Yeah. Going back in history and yeah, learning where. Yeah. Where these things came from. Yeah. And I think the other interesting th thing, Zachary, that I like to think about, and I I always like to use this as an example when I do my talks to help people understand what is special about heirlooms. Is if you think if the, if the Cherokee Indians hadn't passed it on to Jean Greenlee's grandfather, and if he hadn't passed them on to her if she hadn't shared them with Mr. Green, if uh, you know Mr. Green didn't share them with me, if I decided not to send them to just the right person, which is Jeff McCormick of Southern Exposure, if you if you could snip any one of those links, then we don't have Cherokee Purple today. And I'd be willing to bet you can take any heirloom vegetable or fruit or anything like that, and you can find where if you snipped a link somewhere, it, we wouldn't have it anymore. So there is something, I think that's one of the things that satisfies those of us who have fallen in love with growing heirlooms. It's not always about the quality or the color or the flavor. There's that extra attribute that you're keeping something going. You're, you're playing a little part of a role so that, you know, my, my kids and their kids, you know, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, you, you just look out for the next 50, 100 years. We're keeping it going. It's, it's not disappearing. And uh, as we know, you know, once living things are allowed to die, they go extinct. We can't get them back. So um, this whole heirloom gardening thing, I just love it on so many different levels. You know, maybe as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, like I um, remember reading something where something crazy like 96% of tomato varieties have gone extinct since 1916. Uh, I was a report from the Centers of Biodiversity 
and just generally how we're, we've been like yeah losing so much it's uh it's great to see some of these heirlooms thriving and yeah different ways yeah well one of the things i a, a, a kind of a sidelight is my grandfather really was the catalyst for my love of gardening because when i was very young he had a big garden and he would show me around his garden and he he really set the stage for me loving this but then after I'd grown a few hundred heirlooms, I started thinking, what may he have grown in his garden? You know, realizing he was born in the 1890s. And I started my seed catalog collection. And then I started hunting through the USDA and other databases, often accompanied with Mike Dunton, who also has a love of the, what we call them as commercial heirlooms, varieties that seed companies came out with, you know, way back in the, from say between 1870 and 1920, 1930. And we've actually found a lot of them. And I think tomato, tomato is a more fortunate crop because it is self-pollinated. Um, they tend to be able to be seed saved with less incidences of crossing. Um, and so we do have a lot of the best of anything that's ever uh, been developed. Whereas other crops that are not self-pollinating like corn and squash and things where the bees can really intervene and and mess things up there's probably less of those historical varieties around than there are of tomatoes but whatever we do have we've really got to strive to make sure that we can maintain it so that uh more of them don't go away and and you know in the public's rush to whatever is on the fancy gardening magazine with the shiny pictures or the latest seed catalog or the latest hybrid um, we heirloom gardeners may not be the most exciting, but we have the stuff with the stories and the stuff that can be passed on and handed down. So uh, that's pretty special in itself. Yeah. Yeah, you've been talking about heirloom gardening, and we know uh, a little bit about open pollinated versus hybrid, but uh -huh. um, would you want to describe uh, kind of the difference or different? Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. So. One of the reasons that I like to tell people a hybrid can never become, a, can never be an heirloom is because if you save seeds from a hybrid, um, what you get will be a mixture. It will segregate into things that look like the two parents and, and combinations in between. So an heirloom um, is an open pollinated variety. Open pollinated meaning it's uh, essentially genetically stable. Uh, if you grow Cherokee purple and save seeds from it and the bees don't intervene, you'll get Cherokee purple the next year. Whereas with a hybrid, somebody understands that combining two varieties together, there'll be this synergistic effect and what results will be greater than the two parents. But you're actually in that hybrid seed packet getting the results of a hand-produced cross. Somebody's actually going in and um, taking pollen from what's going to be the male and they're pulling the anthers off flowers on what's going to be the female and applying that pollen to the tip of the pistil, which is called the style. And if, if a tomato develops, that's the hybrid that, that and the, the seeds in that hybrid tomato are going to the packets, which is why they're a little more costly. So heirlooms and open pollinated are not exactly the same terms. Open pollinated means will be reproduced from saved seed. It's genetically stable. Heirloom, I think of as, as, a, as a special type of open pollinated variety that has some age to it. Maybe it's 50 years old or 70 years old, and it has a story associated with it. Um, there are lots of open pollinated non-heirlooms. Black cherry, which is about maybe 20 years old, and Cherokee chocolate and Cherokee green, which both arose um, out, of, out of Cherokee purple 
through mutations, they're too new to be called heirlooms, but they're stable now, and I call them open pollinated. So it, it can be really confusing to people, but what I like to do is show them some pictures and, and take them through. The most important thing to know, I think, is that with tomatoes, you've got the male and female parts on each flower. So you don't need pollen coming in from a different plant or a different variety to create the fruit. The pollination happens as the flower opens and the anthers brush against um, the style. I didn't know this was going to be sex education, did you? <laughs> but, that, but there you go. See, yeah. you can grab, you got to grab your audience however you can. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's kind of magical. Beans are like that. Peas, eggplants, peppers. Um, a lot of people will say to me, you know, I, I don't see a lot of bees around. I'm really worried about how my, my garden's going to yield. And I'll say, well, you really don't have to worry about things like peppers, eggplants, tomatoes, peas, and beans. They'll do just fine. What you have to worry about are things where you get, where you have male and female flowers on the plant, and a bee needs to transfer the pollen from the male to the female. It's cucumbers, squash, melons, things like that. They will struggle really badly if we have reductions in bee population. Yeah, um, I know some gardeners that are very careful about their tomatoes in mm -hmm. terms of like where they'll seed savers or produ people producing seed for say a seed company right um, and the distance being something like five to twenty feet away have you experienced right. um, much crossing and then if you have like are there any particular traits or within like different varieties that kind of watch out for um, uh, yeah so so here's how here's how I handle this and as someone who likes to grow lots of different tomatoes I've just used kind of what I observe in the garden to be able to um, save seed from varieties planted quite close together and yet experience very little crossing. Um, the first thing to know is because tomatoes are as I said they're perfect flowered meaning they have male and female even if you have plants right next to each other, up to 70 or 80 percent of the time that flower will pollinate itself before the bees visit it. Now that means you could get 20 percent crossings. So what I've noticed in my garden is that bee activity on tomatoes is very very low until the temperature goes up and uh, the plants start getting, they start flowering several feet off the ground. And I found that by concentrating on the the fruit set of the first cluster low down in the plant, even with plants close together, I'm getting about 99% purity. Now, for if you're seed saving for a seed company, you'd either use wide separations of varieties, or you could actually just bag blossom clusters where you get some really light air and um, moisture permeable fabric um, like floating row cover, remay, various names. You can fashion little sacks out of it and if you see clusters of tomato flowers before they open you just gather that cluster up in the cloth and use a twisty tie to secure it so that no insects can get in. That cluster will open, it will set fruit, and then you can remove the bag once the flowers fall off and the little tomatoes are there and then if you mark that cluster you can be 100% guaranteed that those tomatoes will be will be pure and uncrossed. So those are the two methods to deal with it either by looking at um, which fruit on the plant you save and if you don't see a lot of early bee activity save those first fruit or bagging the clusters. Um, 
you don't know until you save seed and grow it out the following year if you've had a cross um, with the seed and um, typically you won't know until the fruits start ripening unless it's potato leaf varieties um, if you're saving seeds from a potato leaf variety which are not all that common and you see a regular leaf seedling in there you can be pretty sure that's going to be a hybrid between a neighboring regular leaf variety and the potato leaf variety but we're getting a little technical here it's just yeah. you learn all these tricks about um, you know finding out the earliest possible way to identify dominant and recessive traits which right. can help tell you if you're if you're seeing crossing or not and then yeah if you see that non-potato leaf in the yep. potato leaf maybe you want to remove that plant if you're just wanting the potato leaf to be yeah yeah here and all that or or you can do what I did with developing lucky crosses grow it to see what you get and this is where <laughs> yeah. you know, it, and a, so I ended up yeah. Exciting, yeah yeah I ended up with a hybrid between brandywine and a neighboring striped variety oh, wow. and I pl and I played with it for about seven or eight years with a friend and ended up with a potato leaf um, bi-colored one pound tomato that had the flavor of brandywine and I called it lucky cross so some because I was very very lucky the bees made the cross you know so some yeah. names just kind of kind of say themselves Wow um, I, I was reading um, a little bit about your book uh, Epic Tomatoes uh, uh -huh. yeah, one, one of the parts was uh, talking about how you uh, collect seeds from tomatoes kind of curious uh, your method on Sure. Yeah. Well, seed saving is kind of fun because you can combine it with uh, either processing or eating. So, so a few things. Number one, I always travel in the garden with the ripe tomatoes with a sharpie marker in my pocket, and uh, I write the name of the tomato. Sometimes it will have a number code. So if I'm growing like three different brandy wines and they'll each have a number that identifies which it's from because I want to keep that straight. So my, my poor family has learned through the years that when they want to eat a tomato for a meal, they have to avoid any ones that have writing on them. <laughs> because because the writing... number four was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll say, that was the last tomato on number four and I can't save seeds from it anymore and we have a big fight. No, we don't, we don't. Um, it used to be that I was, when I was trying to establish um, the yields of different varieties, uh, I was weighing all my tomatoes. So, that, so I've, I've found many, many ways to not only drive my family crazy, but to convince them that I'm insane. Um, <laughs> because, but anyway, so I, I write down on, on the tomato what the variety is, and I'll bring it in. And uh, what, I've, what I've found is if you've got maybe... 60 varieties all ripening at once one of the great things to do then is to can tomatoes because you know when you're canning you want to get rid of excess moisture and seeds so I'll just line up cups and label them and cut the tomatoes in half and squeeze those seeds into the cup and then chop the rest up and they'll go into a big bowl and then we'll do the hot water bath can of them so that's kind of fun to do that I've also combined seed saving with salsa making you know pico de gallo just chop those tomatoes up nice and fine with some jalapenos. I'm a chemist, so I like to cook. I, it's hard for me to avoid talking about food at some point. Yeah. Um, but I'm a fermentation guy, so I'll, I'll, put the, I'll squeeze the seeds from those tomatoes in the label cups, and they'll go on my front porch. Um, I'll put paper towels over the top because when they start fermenting, 
it's one of the worst smells known to human beings. They, they really stink. Um, but that fermentation process is important because um, when you think about it, so a tomato is about 92% water. When we cut a tomato open, why don't we see little tomato plants inside? Because all of those seeds are essentially sitting in water. And it's because the seeds are protected by a germination inhibitor that it, and that is protected by the gel coating that sits around each seed. Mm. So that's how um, you can get a tomato and eat it and see it full of seeds instead of little tomato plants. Mm -hmm. Now when you start that fermentation process a few things happen. Um, you get a white fungal layer that forms over the top. Uh, you could be killing any seed-borne diseases that may be, have been on the plant, but you're also breaking down that gel layer, which allows the germination inhibitor to wash off the seed. So if it's really, really warm and you've got tomato plants, uh, tomatoes fermenting, tomato seeds fermenting in your cups and you forget them, say after about a week, you will look in those cups and you will actually see little tomato plants germinating. It's too late. You've let them go too long. So you don't want to let it go any longer than maybe three or four days when it's really warm, maybe two or three days. And then I'll just fill the cups with water, stir it around, and um, you'll get all of the gunk floats to the top, the, the good seeds sink to the bottom, and just decant that off, repeat that a few times, and put those through a sieve. And you get nice clean tomato seeds that you can then, um, I scrape them onto an unglazed paper plate, label the plate, and then just leave them on my dining room table for a week or two, mm -hmm. hoping that the cats don't get too curious about them. They have scrambled my collection a few times. Um, it's keep fun the to plates play. too close yeah. together, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what's really cool is then you can just put them in coin envelopes or put them in little plastic uh, containers. But tomato seeds last about 12 to 14 years with very little drop-off in germination, mm. as long as you keep them in a low humidity situation. Mm. You know, my, if most houses will have a, an air conditioner or heat pump. And um, I see a pretty significant drop-off in germination right around a, between, say, 14 to 16 years of age. <clears throat> and I'd like to do some studies on that to see if the seed is dying or is it going to some sort of a dormancy that could be broken by some sort of a, a me, you know, a means of adding something to it. I haven't, future, future research projects that I've not done yet. Yeah. Other, a, other, yeah, go ahead. That's a long uh, period. So what is yeah, your yeah. store? I'm curious now what your, uh, mm. your storage method is. I know cool, yeah. cool, dark, dark and dry and. No, no. My office sitting in coin office. envelopes, right? Uh, I just, um, germinated some Cherokee chocolate and Cherokee purple that I saved in 2010 and they germinated 95% in four days. So um, they, they last uh, a long time. The enemy of seeds is fluctuating humidity or high humidity. So if you're in a, like a, if you're in a, a, an area where it gets really hot and humid and you don't have air conditioning in the house, you'd, you'd probably want to dry those seeds down with a little silica gel and, and either put them in the fridge or the freezer. And, um, and, and temperature fluctuation is maybe number two. You know, they say it is, but my seeds have, I used to store them in the garage at my house and it would, so they would experience temperatures between 40 and 90 degrees. And I was seeing, again, no drop off in germination until about age to all 14. All about the moisture. Yeah. yeah, but there's another point here in that gardening, one of the reasons gardening is endlessly fascinating is because of the numbers of techniques that 
everybody who has ever gardened has and some of them are handed down from relatives some of them people have read about here or there some are urban legends and it's almost um there are so many different ways to, to to do things and so i like to describe to people what works for me so epic tomatoes has a lot about how i start my seeds how i save my seeds and that doesn't mean that there are other methods that don't work just as well um, one of the reasons I get off Facebook and Twitter and, and don't like to get too interactive online is people like to pick fights. This yeah, doesn't work. Yeah. You can't do that. This way or this way. Yeah, yeah, this way or the highway. And I am very much a, I want to help teach people things, but I also want to learn from people. That makes me a better gardener. It makes me a better seed saver. It makes me more able to tell people there are five different ways to do this, and they're all great. Pick the pick your favorite one. So um, yeah, I'm totally. a I'm very much a gray area, kind of in the middle of black and white type of a guy. Uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I've, I've been uh, mainly saving uh, my tomato seeds in jars, kind of the yeah. same idea. Like, let's keep it uh, constant once it's dried down. And then right. We did this germination test uh, with a mm -hmm. friend of mine where we tested all of her seeds uh, that yeah. she didn't throw in silica gel packets, and we right. tested them all that we did and the ones with silica gel packets germinated twice as good even though they were uh you know more uh, way older so right right so that's my method now. i just throw silica gel packets. yep yep it works so. great the, now the other way that people will save seeds and there's again there's multiple ways is uh people will use tsp trisodium phosphate and mm. they'll do a very brief soak i think what happens is that will break down the gel very 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 quickly and then so you're not doing a, a germination you're doing like a 10 or 15 or 20 minute treatment and then you you dry them and you get your seeds i've not used that um you know there's something to me that's almost folklorish about having trays of fermenting tomato seeds in my front porch and i don't want to overly modernize and uh take some of the fun and the steps and the time out of what i do um so I'll never claim to be the most efficient gardener or the one who knows how to use every single method the best. Um, I like to learn about different things that people do, but then I'll always go back to ones that just work for me. Yeah. Yeah, what better thing to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And <laughs> just do it, what's been working and what sure. kind of seems right. So I guess my last question is, uh, or maybe more has <laughs> more come yeah. up, but... Uh, uh, with this uh, plant the seed kit for slow foods, um, uh -huh. I guess like any recommendations to people getting this seed um, <laughs> in the mail that they'll be getting. So this this episode will come out in uh, in a few weeks, and okay. I guess they probably have planted by that point. But um, mm -hmm. but as people are growing the tomato, um, sure, any kind of things to note, or do people have to. Uh, um, I forget what it's called, but uh, pick the uh, the growth points off. Or, uh, ah, okay. We'll talk about some of that. Sure. So I think the first thing to know is people should not be intimidated or afraid of growing tomatoes from seed. It's, it's just so quick and so easy. Um, you know, some of the key points for me are using a good, clean, sterile, soilless mix to start your seeds in. I use very shallow covering, I use bottom heat, um, but uh, my seeds leap out of the ground in three or four days, you know, and I get excellent germination. And if I, I actually plant my seeds very densely, I'll, I'll use 50 cell plug flats and put up to 50 or 60 seeds in a cell. So I'll have 
2,500 or 3,000 seedlings in a one by two foot footprint, and then I transplant them. Um, I find the time from seeding to maybe upsizing into a three to four inch pot is about a month, and the time from letting that really get established with a good strong root system is about a month. So, but Cherokee purple for a large fruited variety is actually a pretty quick tomato. I've always found first ripe fruit come in in around 65 or 70 days from transplant, which um, for a tomato of its size is, is really, really pretty quick. Um, people should get about uh, 20 to 25 pounds of plant if if it's given you know good rich soil you can grow it in a 10 gallon container you'll still get that type of a yield um, it's it sets very um, large numbers of flower clusters especially initially you'll, you'll see a cluster maybe with 15 or 20 flowers on it and then um, some of those will fall off and maybe that first cluster will have six or eight fruit should be in maybe the 10 to 12 ounce range um, and they will always retain greenish shoulders when they're ripe. That's just one of the genetic characteristics with it. So there's always a little bit at the very top that you may need to cut off, but the bottom will be just absolutely delicious. Um, it is an indeterminate variety, meaning, and, and about 95% of tomatoes are indeterminate, meaning it will grow up, it will grow out, it will take over your garden. Um, every time that the main stem meets a leaf, um, stem, uh, what's called a sucker, will come out at a 45 degree angle. Um, now, they're not good, they're not bad. They, each one of those suckers is actually going to be another flowering, fruiting stem. So if you prune every sucker off your plant, once that gets to whatever height you want to keep it at, once those flowers uh, blossom and set fruit, that's it let one sucker develop, you're potentially doubling your yield. Let uh, two suckers go, you're potentially tripling your yield. Suckers are really good for hedging your bets. If, if the conditions aren't right for fruit set, for certain blossom clusters, maybe blossoms on the suckers that you allow for, to form, will the conditions will be right. So I just use sisal twine or sisal twine and tie maybe I'll prune everything but three or four of those suckers off, but I'll have a pretty big, heavily producing wide plant that I just tie to a central stake. Or you can use a uh, concrete reinforcing wire and build yourself a nice sturdy six foot tall tomato cage. And if you do that, don't prune a thing. Let everything go. Your yields will probably be enormous if you keep it fed and watered well. Um, but it's a fun variety. It's a great starter variety because it seems to grow well in all areas of the country. It has some natural tolerance to some really pesty tomato diseases. Um, I've never lost one to Fusarium wilt. It handles Septoria well. It handles early blight pretty well. Um, yeah, I really like the variety. And you know, so it was sent to me in 1990. It is one of the few varieties I can say has been in every garden since. And here we are in 2020. So. Um, a good <laughs> yeah. vote of confidence for it. <laughs> totally, yeah. Yeah, because sometimes you think, uh, uh, when I think about some of my corn varieties up here and uh -huh. where I'm at in almost Fargo, um, that probably won't work too well in <laughs> Tennessee because going from my direction right. to the east, there's yes. so many more other disease and moisture considerations. But sure. do you think potentially because it, it's grown in an area with a lot of moisture that when it is brought out west it does okay yeah it should as long as you keep it watered well and 
you know, one of the things I found about Cherokee Purple that maybe does speak to a trace of local adaptation is when I grew it in Pennsylvania, it was very, very, very good. When I grew it down, when I grow it down here in North Carolina, it is superb. And I think that when you think about it, where is home for Cherokee Purple? Well, the latitude line of Sevierville, Tennessee cuts right across where I've been growing it in North Carolina. And um, so it is probably a bit happier uh, where, when it's at its origin point. However, it does well, you know, I've had good reports from Seattle, from, you know, people in Minnesota, Chicago, even down in Florida. So people can make it work. Um, you know, the other thing I would suggest if people want to see ways that I start my seeds and do my transplanting and stuff, I do have videos on my website. Mm -hmm. It's it's free. There's no ads or anything like that. So people can just go to craiglahulier.com and look at resources. There's a pull down and you can see videos. Of, they're, they're crude videos. They're from handheld cameras, you know, nothing fancy, but it shows people how I do my stuff. and. And anybody can email me anytime and ask me anything, and I'll get back to them right away. So I like to make myself available for, for all gardeners to be able to succeed and help them in any way I can. Cool, that's great. Great info to know and great resource. Especially now, uh, social distancing and <laughs> <laughs> social on. distancing. Uh, yeah. Video uh, learning might be a thing of the future. So. God, Cherokee Purple, yeah, Cherokee Purple in the time of COVID-19. <laughs> I, I can see the future book coming out now. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, thanks so much. I actually have one more question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of a personal question, I don't know. Sure. But uh, with when I planted, I'm planting at a new spot uh, mm -hmm. that I haven't last year uh, right. just moved. And um, it was the first time I kind of experienced that it looked like an early blight but everybody told me and from everything I read it was like that maybe it didn't water enough but it didn't get the uh, the calcium intake that it needed so it kind of had that like brown or black rot look but it was kind of like a nutrient problem oh and the tomato itself yeah yeah experienced um, that or yeah kind of tricks around kind of getting the calcium to the to fruit for the early fruits and then after the early fruit it was it was fine after that, but yeah. I did miss out on all that. Early. Sure. So a few things, um, and yeah, blossom end rot is is an issue. But what I've learned about it through the years uh, are a few things. Number one, it is a physiological disorder. So it's you could actually save seeds from blossom end rot fruit, and they'll be absolutely fine. And in fact. If people are gardening and some of your early fruit on an heirloom do have blossom end rot, use those for your seed saving because the genetics in the fruit are fine. And because they're early fruit, they're much, much less likely to have been visited by bees and cross. So there's your hint of the day. You can, you can, uh, you know, dispel your disappointment by saying, well, maybe it doesn't look that great to eat, but I can use it as my seed saving for this variety. Um, blossom end rot is actually caused by plant stress. And the plant stress creates an inability for the plant to efficiently use the calcium that is actually often there. It's just not as accessible. And when you think about what's happening early in the season with the tomato, it's it's growing, it's establishing itself, it's setting down those roots, it's producing suckers that you may or may not pick off. It's flowering. It actually also may be setting fruit and and 
of those fruit are enlarging. So the plant is doing an awful lot of work early on and often um, the days are starting to get hot maybe in the afternoon and you just haven't gotten enough water to that plant so that it is um, you're, you're preventing it from starting to show some stress and, and with tomatoes it shows stress by wilting. It will just you know the sun will come out for some reason you just haven't gotten water to that plant and the plant visibly wilts. Now you water it of course and you say well that's fine the plant has come back but as that plant was stressing the calcium migration out of the fruit is what starts the process of that blossom end rot. So if you went with a drip irrigation or what I do here is actually I'm, when it gets really hot I'm watering, hand watering mm -hmm. sometimes morning and afternoon um, or soaker hose or drip um, or use self-watering types of containers you can completely eliminate blossom end rot if you're growing in good soil that, or you know you know that all of your nutrients are there it's the inability to actually access them because the plant stress so remove the plant stress you will completely eliminate blossom end rot I had none in my 150 mm. plants last year because I decided to really pay attention to watering and here's another the last hint I'll give you is a lot of people are you know will think I want to dry farm my tomatoes I want to intensify those flavors so last year in Raleigh where I gardened we had 70 days of 90 degrees or above I was watering my straw bales and my containers twice a day for months um, I had the best flavored most intensely flavored tomatoes I've had in decades so it's much more important to keep your plant stress-free. The flavors will be fine. Flavor is typically dictated by the genetics of a variety. And uh, people shouldn't be so afraid to overwater as long as they've got good drainage because that will reduce that stress and it will eliminate the blossom end drop. Well, great. I'm going to definitely set up my drip irrigation for next year. <laughs> great. Me too. <laughs> Well, thanks for chatting today. Absolutely. Anytime. And uh, anything I can do to help or, you know, share information that you think I may have, um, just ask. It's, it was fun. Thanks. Yeah, that was great. Um, Is that all right? Yeah. So much info. I, um, you know, it's, it's weird that um, I'm a scientist by training and that's just the way my brain is organized is you yep. start, you just click <laughs> me into it, it click me into a topic and it's like the floodgates open. That's, that's how, you know, I wrote Epic to me and it was really fast because I just sat down with a computer and let it pour out. Yeah. <laughs> it felt so good to finally get it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't realize how much is in there, right? <laughs> well, you know, anybody who does something for a long time they may not even realize it, but yeah. we, we do accumulate. We, accum you know, we accumulate knowledge like crazy, and it is very therapeutic sometimes to just, you know, hit the pressure relief valve and, right. and let it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Zachary, if there's ever anything I can send you that you want to try, like I said, my seed collection's huge. We, yeah. We're, you know, heavily into the dwarf tomato breeding project. Yeah, that because was the other... Yeah. yeah, so I was talking to... Uh, to my friend John Edgerton, who... Uh -huh. Oh, John, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I met uh, he met you at the OSA briefly and loved meeting John. That was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, he was he's starting to tell me about the the dwarf tomatoes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got 125, and uh, they're all being sold by Victory Seeds right now. But we're always looking for people that want to play, and we, 
you know, we do initial crosses and then we we send seed out and select out the dwarfs and then mm -hmm. we go for just different fruit types. Uh, we're working on cherries and paste. But really our, our target audience was um, people who were relegated to um, patio, driveway, um, deck gardening and mm -hmm. they didn't you know they didn't want to deal with a 10 foot tall tomato plant so yeah just shoot me shoot me an, an email and your I mean, mailing yeah, address I mean, if you ever want to try them I, if you have any even this year I mean I'm, yeah I'm starting yeah. tomatoes I, I'm a kind of a late starter um, sure I know some people start early and get the plants big but I kind of get them yeah maybe about less than a foot uh, but no, I, I like small plants. I, I usually I'm selling my transplants when they're six feet, six inches tall, and you know people. Yeah, it's when, a little when, easier. Yeah, and when people first started buying them from me, they'd say your plants look so puny compared to what's at the farmer's market. I said, well, put those, put the plants in the farmer's market in the ground, put mine in the ground, and look which ones of them undergo transplant shock. And right. mine never have transplant shock. You put them in and they shoot up. Yeah. The ones from the farmer's market, they droop. They look unhappy. You can't you know they can't deal with it so yeah everybody gets so excited I'm just yeah like, i know, well, you, know like, yeah. <laughs> you count back the six weeks or whatever yeah i know i like, know well that that should be middle of april for me <laughs> yeah well i'll tell you what drop me send me an email with your mailing address and let me know how many types you want to try and whether you want finished varieties or you want to try to some of our stuff that's still showing a lot of um diversity so you can see you know, it's like kid in a candy store. You can see what you get. Um, yeah, I'd like to maybe try a little bit of both. That'd be good. All right. Some some stuff that you'd uh, like to work on more in, in specific ways. Or? Um, we just need help on all of it because we're coming out. We've got variegated leaf dwarfs. We've got ones with anthocyanin. We've got hearts. We've got stripes. We've got paste. Um, and cool. flavor is always paramount for us. Mm -hmm. The problem with it is we've put them out there and um, you know we've had 700 volunteers all over the world working with us what we're going to find out now that they're being sold as seed is which ones are going to do well where which ones are going to people going to like the best which ones are going to have disease issues in which areas of the country so right. I you know we're 15 years into the project but I could convince myself that we've only just begun because we don't yet have the feedback mm -hmm to know but that's fun we'll see how it all yeah, goes now i'm pretty far yeah. north and Good. in the middle of the country so sure anything you might have a hunch on that might grow well yeah. in a short season yep and uh, we've got stuff too a new seed yeah. company north circle seeds so cool I think we're going to have a little collaboration going here and It'll i guess the other thing too is uh yeah just joined this group called the Tomato Club, <laughs> so it'd be a good talking point with them too. That's this guy uh, Jack sure. Wood uh, with Fargo. Uh, he does a lot cool. of growing together. But this year we're doing a yeah a hundred variety tomato project. We're oh neat like seven of us. We're all growing uh, yeah fourteen varieties. So together yeah. we have a hundred varieties. Good. Well, let me send you some stuff to add to the mix that will be pretty unique, and you'll be cool. the only kid on the block with it, so you can see how it does. Well, thanks. Good. Um, glad we're friends. Glad we're in touch. And I look forward to whatever the future brings. I think we'll have a blast. Thank That's you. Great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.